Amen. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Thank you so much for being here this morning. If you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. Um, you are found us in the brand new series that we're calling Jesus. And I hope it becomes evident why we're doing that pretty soon. I want to thank, before I start, I want to thank Greg Petersheim for filling in last Sunday. And before that, Adam Nagel, the new executive director of the factory, for filling in. Appreciate their contribution to um, our body here. Um, but we're, we're starting this series today called Jesus. And here's my assumption that every one of you in the room here and everyone listening has actually already heard the name of Jesus. And that actually, in hearing the name, it can elicit within you a, a reaction, emotional reaction across the spectrum from maybe affection for Jesus, maybe apathy toward the name because you've heard it so much, or maybe, depending on your background, even anger for all of what Jesus may have represented or maybe even the church has represented in your past. But it's interesting to me that the name of Jesus is so well known that it has such a wide range of reactions to it. And, but I want to present this idea to you that you probably would know if you think about it this way, that there actually was a time when if I were to say the name of Jesus, no one would know who in the world he was. There was a time in human history where no one knew Jesus. No one had a reaction to his name. No one thought, I'm going to worship him. No one thought, I'm going to be angry at him. No one even had apathy toward him. He just was simply unknown. And in that space of being an unknown, just honestly, a child born like any other child. Now, his birth was completely different. I, please hear me well. But someone who entered time and space history at a time when no one knew, by and large, how to respond, or even what he was going to do. And Jesus decided to introduce himself to the world in his own way. He prodded, he provoked, he angered, he confused, he even marveled people. And this is why you know who Jesus is today, is because of his decision on how he was going to reveal himself to the world. Now, you've heard it said of people, particularly people who are very famous, that sometimes reputation precedes them. And maybe in your own business, you have people who, oh, their reputation precedes them. Maybe people who are your bosses or the CEOs of the company or whatever, their reputation precedes them. When they walk into a room, you already have an impression of them. Jesus is one of those people. His reputation precedes him. But there are times with people like that, that our opinion of their reputation reputation is actually based on what other people have told us about their reputation rather than getting to know them for who in the world they are from the jump. And in this series on Jesus, what I want to introduce to you and give to you, I want to kind of take you to a point in history where no one knew Jesus. Jesus' reputation did not precede him yet. There was a blank canvas on this man named Jesus. There was an opportunity for you to form your own opinion about who this person is, to see the work of his hands, to hear his teaching, for you to be influenced, for you to decide who is this person, because there is no reputation yet. That is what I want to do with you for the next several weeks, is invite you to kind of set aside, if you will, your opinions about Jesus, your belief even about him, and look at how he decides to introduce himself to the world and form your opinion of Jesus based on how he reveals himself to the world. What I want to use to kind of take us there, because it's been so long since he walked the planet, I want to use a letter that was written by one of his closest followers named John. John was the one a disciple who was very close relationally and emotionally to Jesus. And John wrote a letter that we call 
John that's in the New Testament, the new part of the, the right third of your Bible. But John wrote this letter, and in this letter, here's why he wrote this letter, okay? He gave us pretty clear direction on why in the world he wrote. Here's what he says at the end of his little letter. He said, these things are written, in other words, these things that I wrote are written, that you, and he says this, may believe, this is what I want for you, he writes, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. His hope is that you can believe, his hope is that you can see and believe, and that by believing, you may actually have life in his name. That is the hope of John. Now, the problem is this. Especially if you have grown up in the church, here's part of the problem. There are some times in our lives where we confuse belief and hope. And I want to be clear about what belief is. Okay? I want to be very clear about what belief is from the very beginning. Because John is writing this letter saying, at the end of the day, I want you to see what Jesus has done, and then I want you to believe on it. I want you to believe. And so here's what, here's what I was thinking about belief. That belief is actually a conviction that something is true based on evidence of some kind. This is very important. The belief is this conviction that something's true based on some sort of evidence. Now, to, to flesh that out a little bit further, let me try to set up hope and belief differently. You hope, you hope when you're not sure, but you believe when you have good reason to. <clears throat> let me make this very practical. Today, I have heard, is the opening day for Eagles football. I've heard that. It's true. Now, I've also heard that they are playing a team that they are supposed to beat pretty soundly. <clears throat> That's what I've heard. If you are a Washington Redskins fan, the team they're playing today, you hope the Redskins will win. <clears throat> but you're not sure. If you're an Eagles fan, you believe they are going to win based on evidence of some kind. They have a better roster than the Redskins do. And so our hope and belief are very different. We hope that the underdog might win, maybe. But we believe when we have evidence of some kind, and it's very important to differentiate those words in our language. That I hope when I just kind of like, oh, I'm pulling for you. I mean, you're probably not going to make it, but I hope you make it. But when you're there and I believe based on some kind of evidence, you've always made it. Like, I believe you're going to do this because I've seen you do this before. You have evidence of some kind. Very important to distinguish this. So, for example, for example, another example. Um, as, as kids, how many of you believed in the tooth fairy? Let me give the little show of hands. How many heard of and heard the tooth fairy? Okay, not a very active audience here this morning. All right, we got, we got two, three people. Thank you very much. I'm in that category. Two, three. I was told, and I know several around here are told, listen, the tooth fairy exists. How many of you got like a quarter or a dollar under your pillow for the tooth that was gone? Yep. Okay, very good. Thank you. Audience participation, wonderful. So here's the deal. Kids, kids say this. When, asked, when you ask a young kid, do you believe in the tooth fairy? If they do, they're going to say, Yes, if they do, if they do, right? If they're really young, two, three, four. Like, yeah, yeah, I believe, and I'm going to stick my, my tooth under the pillow. Here's what they actually mean. What they actually mean is, I don't believe in the tooth fairy, but I hope for the tooth fairy. Because if you were to press them and say, well, what evidence do you have of the tooth fairy? I, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I have a dollar under my pillow or whatever, but I don't actually have evidence that there is such a fluttering creature as the tooth fairy, that we have exchanged hope and belief in our vernacular sometimes. And what that means is sometimes we say, like, I believe in the tooth fairy, even though I have no evidence, and then we close our eyes and hope and hope and hope that we believe in the tooth fairy because we really want the tooth fairy to be true. And some people do the very same thing about Jesus. They say, they use the words, especially when they're young, I believe in Jesus. 
but they don't base it on any evidence of any kind. They just hope that Jesus is true. And then the weight of life comes down on them, and all of a sudden there's, there's grief, there's pain, there's struggle. And when you have belief that is actually hope, then you don't have enough to carry you through the pain of life. And so what I want you to consider is, is there enough evidence to plant belief of Jesus on? Not hope, not just hope, like, I hope it's true. I'll close my eyes and hope more. I want you to consider whether Jesus is worth believing in. And that by believing, John writes, that you may have life. That you can plant your life and the weight of your life into Jesus. Now, what Jesus has done in order to introduce himself to the world, again, he, he, no one knew who he was. What he did is he, he did several miracles and talked about himself in particular ways. So in the Gospel of John, in John's little letter, he, he, he gives us seven signs and seven statements that I want to go through for the next several weeks together. And this morning, I want to look at the very first sign, the very first thing that Jesus did. He kind of planted a flag in the ground and said, hey, this is the first sign. This is the first evidence I'm going to give to you of who in the world I am. And it's a soft start. It really is. It's a soft start. After looking at this sign and this miracle of Jesus, no one will walk away and be like, that clearly is the Savior of the world. Like, that's the Messiah. No one walks away thinking that. Not after today. But they do start talking. They're like, whoa, that was amazing. And actually, I'd like to have him come to my next party too. So if you would, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem, there's one in the pew around you. But John is the fourth uh, book in the New Testament. It's going to be in the right two-thirds of your Bible. Love to have you turn there. <clears throat> if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you, by the way, the one in the pew around you there. Uh, we'd love to have you take that with you. But John chapter 2 is where we're going to be here this morning. And even if you've never been in church before, you've probably heard about what Jesus is about to do. And this is where he turns the water into grape juice. That's right. He turns the water into wine. All right, John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Let me pause it right here. First of all, John is writing this just a few years, within the generation or two of people who could validate the story. I want you to know that, if you're considering evidence, that John is saying there is a wedding that took place at Cana in Galilee, and the result is, like, you can go to this space and hear and see and talk with the people who are at this wedding, because people end up talking. And so Jesus' mom was there. We think that this is just a wedding that, that mom was invited to, and Jesus came along as a family member, just the way it would work. And that Jesus and his disciples have been invited. And so then the wine is gone, verse 3. Mom says, you know, they have no more wine. Now for you and for me, our conception of a wedding is very simple and very normal for us. We have a wedding ceremony and then like three and a half hours for pictures. And then we have a reception afterwards, right? That's about the way it works. And the reception is X number of hours long and it's a great time. But the wedding, a wedding in this time is completely different, completely different. First of all, it could go on for up to a week. Right. So that is a problem for many of us, especially those who don't like going to weddings. So when you get an invitation to a wedding, this is a partay that goes on for a long time. It could go on for a week, which is why it's not uncommon to have this little problem at the end, but it's also incredibly embarrassing 
to run out of wine. And what they would often do, and the story will tell us, is they'll give the best wine first, you know, in the first couple days or whatever, and then as your sensibilities and your taste kind of lose, you, you give the, the worst wine later. But it's also a problem because in this world, and again, this is different for us, but when you go to a wedding and you give a wedding gift to someone, here in America, like if I give you, let's say, a, a four-slice toaster, an amazing toaster, it's just great for your wedding, right? Actually, in our world, that's a true-on gift. Like, I've given that to you with no strings attached. If we were back in the ancient Near East, if I give you a toaster, first of all, it'd be great that I could invent electricity and create that and all that, but, but that's aside. If I give you a toaster for your ancient Near Eastern wedding, it is, actually, it is actually not a gift, believe it or not, and we're all okay with that. It's actually a loan. Because I want you to come to my kid's wedding, and I want you to give her an equal toaster, please. And if you don't, I can actually take you to court to get my toaster back, and then I will give it to my daughter, if you don't reciprocate. And so what happens in the ancient Near East is not necessarily gift-giving, but it's reciprocation on and on and on. And so here's the problem. When you run out of wine at your wedding, you have a legal obligation to everyone who is there to provide them with adequate resources to partay for as long as they want to partay, okay? So when you run out of wine, it's not just a social embarrassment, it actually is a potential legal liability for the people who are running this wedding. Which is why Jesus' mom says, hey, Jesus, and I can almost imagine her taking him like, into a little hallway, a little private conversation with Jesus and saying, Jesus, they're out of wine. <clears throat> and immediately understanding the weight of all that, not only the social embarrassment, but the legal liability that the people who are running this wedding hold. To which Jesus <clears throat> says to his mom, this is amazing, this is verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, <clears throat> which is a great way to talk to your mom. My hour has not yet come. Now, seriously, have you ever tried to talk to mom about something <clears throat> and she wants you to do one thing and you're not ready to do that and you want to do another? And who wins that conversation? That's right. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. So Jesus, and he, and he says, woman, <clears throat> excuse me, why, why do you involve me? It's actually maybe even better translated softer as like, dear woman or dear lady. Like, this isn't actually like, woman! This is a, a softer translation. This is actually a very kind, endearing term, but it still is, like, he's clear. Like, hey, <laughs> think about this. You could put it this way. I'm the savior of the world. Do you think, do you think that this, the, the best way, the best way for the savior of the world to reveal his glory is to solve the wine problem at a wedding? Like, is that why all of the omniscience and omnipresence of God Almighty has come down in a body so that I can fix wedding problems? Like, why do you involve me in this silliness? Why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Woman, come on, come on. And I can, I can almost imagine, again, Jesus has done nothing yet. He has done no public teaching yet, no other miracles yet. There is nothing yet to have been made of Jesus, but there's something in Mary, his mom, who has raised him and knows there's something special about him. And it's almost, almost like Mary is treating him like maybe a little genie in a bottle. Like, I don't know, maybe if I rub this side a little bit, my, he can fix this. I don't know how, I haven't seen him do it yet. I don't, there's no evidence of anything yet. There's no history, he's never done this. I don't even know what he's going to do, but I'm just going to tell him. I'm going to pull him into a hallway, and I'm his mom, and I'm just going to tell him, they're out of wine, and you're going to know the weight of what that means. <laughs> and Jesus says, 
The time has not yet come. To which Mary said, good, I'm glad we're on the same page. That's pretty much what she says. Look at this in verse 5. It's funny. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) So she's walking away from that conversation like, that's great, Jesus. So yeah, just do what he says and walks away. Jesus has got to do it, right? I mean, you're talking to mom here. You've got to be kidding me. So nearby, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars. Very important detail next that John includes. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus is standing there, and Mary leaves and walks away and leaves him with this obligation to fix it, deal with it. It's my friends, uh, they can't go through this. And he looks over and he sees over there six stone water jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing. Most families have one of these, okay? There wasn't necessarily indoor plumbing for most homes. Some wealthier homes had that, roughly, but most did not. So most people had one stone water jar that they would use, and they would use it to wash their hands just to get ready to eat. When you have a party, you have to have your friends. Have you ever had, like, let's, when we did a, uh, a picnic in the park, for example, our family owns a cooler, but we don't own 14. So you bring a cooler, I bring a cooler, we all bring coolers, and we have enough to accomplish the task. So I would call you and say, can you please bring your stone water jar? I need help with, uh, for enough water to hold to clean everybody's hands. So there's six there. Five of them, we believe, were borrowed. And so Jesus looks over to these stone water jars that, again, hold 20, 30 gallons, used for ceremonial cleansing. And he says to the servants, all right, fill them up with water. Verse 7. Fill the jars with water, he said, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet is like the maitre d'. The master of the banquet is the uh, wedding coordinator slash event planner wrapped into one. Because the wedding was such a big deal and so complicated, there would often be someone who is the person in charge of the wedding, not a family member, but just someone who ran the whole event. And so they were the first one to take this wine to. And so here's what happens. They did so at the end of verse 8, you'll see. And the master, verse 9, the master of the banquet, the one in charge, tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And then the verse finishes with a statement, and the disciples, his disciples believed in him. This is the first of the signs. This is the first of the sign planted here, and I want it to point toward. I want you to look at it and see this direction. I want you to see where it's going. And the result is exactly what John hopes that people will do when they see the signs is that they will believe. That's the purpose of his writing. Now, this miracle takes me back to this point that when Jesus turns the water into wine, everyone drinks this and are kind of overwhelmed with it. What happens? Imagine if you were at that wedding. People would just start talking. I mean, I was at a wedding yesterday, did a wedding yesterday. And depending on how the wedding goes, up or down, or funny stories from it, we just tell stories of the wedding. And people will talk about it. And that's what Jesus is doing. This is a soft entry to the world, but it is a crazy miracle. And it begins to be talked about in Cana of Galilee. And it begins to build. 
evidence that there is something here that somebody should listen to. Because if belief is conviction that something is true based on evidence of some kind, each sign builds a little bit of evidence. If you're not sure he has the power, go talk to the people who were at the wedding in Cana of Galilee and begin to ask, did it actually happen? And in Cana of Galilee, the story begins to be circulated and it leads into sign number two, which we're going to get to next week, because it begins to be pushed out and people start to talk about not just the teaching that he had, but some evidence that there might be something worth talking about here. But underneath this miracle, by the way, Underneath the stone jars, water, and wine, there's a symbolism that is deep and rich to this story that I don't want to miss. And I alluded to it in that verse where I mentioned that these stone jars were used for ceremonial washing. What I believe the symbolism is under this miracle is that Jesus is one who transforms things. That he comes to transform. And it's not just that he transforms things in particular, but that he transforms what is old into new. That he transforms, in particular, ceremonial cleansing with true richness and beauty. One commentator put it this way. He said that Jesus changes the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. J. Ramsey Michael said it that way, and I love the way he puts it that he takes the ceremonial cleansing, that which was to be used to clean your hands, that which was only good for the outside, and he changes it into something that is great for the inside. And it's a subtle part of the story, but I think incredibly powerful. I think it becomes a way that Jesus introduces, this is who I am at a deeper level. That you used to be used to coming to God by cleansing yourself from the outside. That was called for the Jews, the law. Do enough right things, and they'll outweigh all the bad things. Clean yourself up just right. Keep pouring the water over and making sure that you don't cuss enough and that you watch the right movies and don't dress the wrong way and make sure that your kids are raised the right way and just make sure you're doing the right things and always washing yourself. Make sure that you're cleansed enough. And Jesus takes this very poignant moment to say underneath that, there's more. I want to take the, the law... And change that to something very, very different and transform it. Later on, in the book of Hebrews, the author writes this about what Jesus actually came to do. And talks about the law this way. He said that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. There's more to come. The law introduced us to this idea that I think God might want something from me. Like, I think I probably just shouldn't go around killing people. Like, that's probably not a good idea. There's probably some higher calling that I should have, and it introduces to us this idea that God has more for me. But it's only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. That the law, it just isn't the end. It just isn't the end of it all. He goes on to write this. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. That you can never and I can never, by endlessly, endlessly, making sure that I'm consistent enough in how I pray, making sure that I'm consistent enough in how I read my Bible, making sure I'm consistent enough in how I come to church and how I dress and how I wear, all the things which, by and large... So many of these things are good things to do. They're just not enough to cleanse year after year, over and over. They will never make perfect those who draw near to worship. And he goes on later in Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 to say this, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. That Jesus himself has actually come to take 
the law and the old ways of cleaning ourselves up and transform the way we think about how we even come to God into the wine of the gospel, into the richness and beauty of the gospel. So what does that mean for us? A couple things. If this morning you're here or you're listening online later and you're a skeptic, you're not sure, I get it, I understand. If I could hear your story, I have no doubt I would believe the same way you do. just want to validate that, that your experiences and your history have, have created the space for you to, to react the way you do, and I just want to honor that. I also want you to consider, if you would, on your own account and on the own merit of Jesus' introduction to the world, what do you think? of this evidence? What do you think of the sign of Jesus in this blank canvas of space saying, this I'm going to make to be my first miracle? I just want to invite you to consider how he introduces himself to the world. If you're someone who calls yourself a Christian, I want to encourage you to consider it this way. I want you to encourage you to consider not turning the, the wine back into water. <laughs> and here, here's what I mean. If you can imagine for a minute raising children in this world, you can imagine the, uh, I don't know, every now and then kids get into trouble, right? It is, it is tempting, it is so easy to correct toward rules, to correct toward regulation, and to not correct toward relationship, and not correct toward the cross in particular. It is so easy to correct our kids to get in line rather than to understand what's underneath the line. And I want to encourage you as people who are raising kids or who on your own merit are reacting to rules, regulations, and obedience to move both your children and your own heart toward what drives obedience, toward understanding the grace of the gospel again and not the rules that need to be followed. I want to invite you not to turn the wine back into the water, if you will. So this first miracle that Jesus creates, this first sign that he puts in the ground, is an opening marker to say, I'm beginning to introduce myself to the world. And I want you to see underneath this that I'm someone who's going to take the law, take the old, and transform and change it into the new way, into a way to see God that is completely different than the way that you were used to. That story gets around, particularly in Cana of Galilee, and next week we will see sign number two that Jesus plants in the ground. Look forward to having you here next week for that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together this morning, beginning this conversation around Jesus, who he is and how he introduces himself to us. I pray that you would continue to move in us to help us to see how Jesus introduces himself, the signs that he plants in the ground, the way that he talks about himself, the transformative power of Jesus take old ways of relating to God and change them into new ways of relating to Him. I pray that you would give us the courage to continue to drive into who you are, not just what you ask us to do, and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, not just the demands of religion. Father, we love you. We thank you for sending Jesus to introduce Himself to us in the way that He has chosen. We pray these things in Jesus' name.